One thing that's often well known about Steve Jobs is that he has a reality distortion field, which is people's term for how he gets people to do what he wants to do and sometimes state impossible things and actually make it happen. Um, it can be a toxic work environment sometimes, but then at the same time, a lot of be these people who complain also turn around and say that's the best work of their lives. So there are trade-offs here. It's not a simple either-or thing. But I like this analysis from Ben from the My First Million pod. Working on the Macintosh, one thing he does is hire one of the head engineers from Xerox uh, who had been working on the GUI back at Xerox. He tells him, and I kid you not, this is a direct quote, quote, everything you've ever done in your life is shit. So why don't you come work for me? <laughs> and, and he did. Uh, Steve could motivate people by pushing them. This is one of those areas where I think Bill Gates would say, don't try this at home. Um, some people might read this and say, okay, I'm going to be rude and extremely blunt with people. It worked for Steve Jobs. It'll work for me. But his rudeness wasn't the asset here. His asset was his passion for product and his willingness to be honest. Uh, his rudeness, I think, really was a liability. The only reason that he actually was able to hire this guy after telling him that everything you've done in your life is shit um, was because he had this amazing passion for the actual product and it was shining through. Anyway, Steve doesn't stop with Xerox engineers. He also starts rating the top engineers at Apple to come work on his Macintosh project. There's a great engineer, a guy by the name of Andy Hertzfeld, and Steve comes up to his cubicle one day and says, hey, you're working on the Macintosh now. Um, I'll read from the Isaacson biography what happens next. Quote, Hertzfeld replied that he needed a couple more days to finish the Apple II product he was in the middle of. What's more important than working on the Macintosh, Jobs demanded. Hertzfeld explained that he needed to get his Apple II DOS program in good enough shape to hand it over to someone else. You're just wasting your time with that, Jobs replied. Who cares about the Apple II? The Apple II will be dead in a few years. The Macintosh is the future of Apple, and you're going to start on it now. With that, Jobs yanked out the power cord to Hertzfeld's Apple II, causing the code he was working on to vanish. Come with me, Jobs said. I'm going to take you to your new desk. Jobs drove Hertzfeld, computer and all, in his silver Mercedes to the Macintosh offices. Here's your new desk, he said. Welcome to the Mac team. As you may have gathered, Steve Jobs is obsessive with the Mac team. He gets all the best people and he pushes them extremely hard. He's able to persuade them to not only work hard, but reach levels of genius and hard work that they didn't even know they possessed. One way he's able to do that is with what his team eventually comes to call his reality distortion field. And what is this reality distortion field? It's this thing where reality seems to get suspended when you're with Steve Jobs. Team members would describe how when they were with Steve, he could get them to believe these impossible things. Things like, okay, we can develop this completely new product in only six weeks. And they would totally buy in and believe it. Um, and then when they leave an hour later, it's like waking up for a dream. They start to think, wait, what was I thinking? Um, Isaacson, Isaacson described it this way, quote, when members of the Mac team got ensnared in his reality distortion field, they were almost hypnotized. He reminded me of Rasputin, said Debbie Coleman. He laser beamed in on you and didn't blink. It didn't matter if he was serving purple Kool-Aid. You drank it. But she believed that the reality distortion field was empowering. It enabled Jobs to inspire his team to change the course of computer history with a fraction of the resources of Xerox or IBM. It was a self-fulfilling distortion, she claimed. You did the impossible 
because you didn't realize it was impossible. Andy Hertzfeld described it like this. Steve has the reality distortion field. In his presence, reality is malleable. He can convince anyone of practically anything. It wears off when he's not around, but it makes it hard to have realistic schedules. Uh, another guy, Tribble. It was dangerous to get caught in Steve's distortion field, but it was what led him to actually be able to change reality. Uh, Wozniak, his reality distortion is when he has an illogical vision of the future, such as telling me that I could design the breakout game in just a few days. You realize that it can't be true, but he somehow makes it true. So it's this amazing tool. Somehow by creating this field, he's able to convince people of the impossible and then actually get them to do it, to do the impossible. But it's a double-edged sword because the truth is you can only distort reality so much. And when you try and distort it any further, it can have negative consequences. Joanna Hoffman, a key early Apple employee, phrased it this way. Reality distortion has motivational value, and I think that's fine. However, when it comes to setting a date in a way that affects the design of the product, then we get into real deep shit. There's this great story of the Macintosh team. It's the end of the development cycle. The computer is basically done, but the software team is not quite ready to ship all of the software. They have been absolutely killing themselves, working long hours, day and night to get everything ready and right. But they're just not going, quite going to make it to the deadline. They're going to be a couple weeks late is all. And they call up Steve, who is out on the East Coast for the rollout, to let him know that it's, hey, it's just going to be a little bit late, a couple weeks. Uh, here's what happened. Quote, software manager calmly explained the situation to Jobs, while Hertzfeld and others huddled around the speakerphone holding their breath. All they needed was an extra two weeks. The initial shipments to the dealers could have a version of the software labeled demo, and these could re be replaced as soon as the new code was finished at the end of the month. There was a pause. Jobs did not get angry. Instead, he spoke in cold, somber tones. He told them they were really great. So great, in fact, that he knew they could get this done. There's no way we're slipping, he declared. There was a collect collective gasp in the Bandley building workspace. You guys have been working on this stuff for months now. Another couple weeks isn't going to make that much of a difference. You may as well get it over with. I'm going to ship the code a week from Monday with your names on it. And uh, that is kind of a motivational technique combined with a threat. You know, hey, I'm shipping this and it's going to have your names on it. So if it doesn't work, that's going to be on you. Um, but it worked. They worked nonstop for the next two weeks and they got the Macintosh software ready to ship on time. So again, reality distortion field, double-edged sword. In fact, it has sort of its own narrative arc. It starts as something very effective when he just sort of does it as an instinct early on in his career. But then he becomes aware of it and thinks he can literally make anyone do anything just by using his reality distortion field. And it really becomes a symbol of his failure um, as he tries to use it too much. But he matures. And upon his return to Apple, he's able to use the reality distortion field in a mature way, realizing that you can't bend reality exactly how you want all the time, but you can do a lot with it using this technique. And how is he able to create this reality distortion field? Well, there were a few different techniques he used. One was, uh, as we saw in some of the previous stories, sheer force of will. Other times it was his inability or unwillingness to see obstacles. Another technique was to help people see the bigger picture. There's a fantastic example of this in the Isaacson biography, uh, quote from it. 
One day, Jobs came into the cubicle of Larry Kenyon, an engineer who was working on the Macintosh operating system, and complained that it was taking too long to boot up. Kenyon started to explain, but Jobs cut him off. If it could save a person's life, would you find a way to shave 10 seconds off the boot time? He asked. Kenyon allowed that he probably could. Jobs went to a whiteboard and showed that if there were 5 million people using the Mac and it took 10 seconds extra to to turn it on every day, that added up to 300 million or so hours per year that people would save, which was the equivalent of at least 100 lifetimes saved per year. Larry was suitably impressed, and a few weeks later he came back and it booted up 28 seconds faster. Atkinson recalled, Steve had a way of motivating by looking at the bigger picture. Listen to one other time he got his team to see the big picture. Midway through the Macintosh development, the case is finished. They know what it's going to look like. And so he brings his team into a room and tells them true artists sign their art. So he has them sign the inside of the case. No one's going to see it, but it's there. Every Mac is going to ship with their signatures on the inside of it. Atkinson, one of the engineers, said, quote, with moments like this, he got us seeing our work as art. Another tool he used was taking an extreme position. Everything was either the best thing ever or it totally sucked. Usually it totally sucked. But why did he do this? Well, for one thing, it forced him to actually find the weak spots and new ideas. For another, it forced people to have really great ideas. If you know someone is going to attack your idea as totally sucking, you're not going to even bring it to them until you know it's actually an awesome idea and you can defend it. And if it was an awesome idea and you did defend it, Steve would respect you and change his opinion, sometimes immediately. There was even an award for the person who stood up to Steve Jobs the most. And Steve encouraged the award. He was still going to tell you your stuff sucked, But he liked it when you stood up to him and stood up for your idea and helped him see the other perspective. And this inspires strength and passion in people who work for him. One of the biggest problems managers have is getting people to care. And that is not something Steve Jobs ever struggled with. Listen to this story from Joanna Hoffman. She made some sales projections. And Steve changed the projections in a way that she hated and she thought was totally wrong. She thought that he was going behind her back and messing with what she had done is something that was right. And when she saw the projections that he had altered, she was furious. She describes the experience this way, quote, as I'm climbing the stairs, I told his assistant, I'm gonna take a knife and stab it into his heart. The corporate counsel comes running out to restrain her so she doesn't actually murder Steve Jobs. Um, But then she recounts, quote, but Steve heard me out and backed down. So yes, there's this crazy conflict But I know, I look back on my management experience, and I would love to have an employee who cared so much about her work that she threatened to stab me in the heart over it. It sounds crazy, but it's kind of true. Apathy is one of the biggest problems you will face as a manager. Steve Jobs was able to inspire this kind of extreme passion in his employees all the time. And one of the main ways he does that is by staking out these extreme positions and forcing people to defend their work. And therein lies the paradox of what it meant to work for Steve Jobs. It could be extremely grating and draining. And yet many people look back on working with him fondly because he was able to get their best work out of them. As Debbie Coleman said, quote, he would shout at a meeting, you asshole, you never do anything right. It was like an hourly occurrence, yet I consider myself 
the absolute luckiest person in the world to have worked with him. And one thing to point out is Steve did all this because he actually cared. He cared about the product and about getting it right. This wasn't some giant ego trip. I mean, I, I know I've had the kind of manager who I go, I bring them a report and they say, no, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. So I go and I make the edits and I bring it back and they say, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. And some of the things that they now say are wrong are the changes that they told me to make the first time around. And the kind of person that is looking for things wrong just to assert their authority, say, I'm the man, I know what's going on here. And for the most part, Steve's feedback is focused in the right direction. He really wants to make great products. There's a story that illustrates this with the calculator application that was going to ship with the Macintosh. The engineer working on it, his name's Espinoza, and he shares the first iteration of the calculator with Steve. And here's what happens. Uh, quote, well, it's a start, Jobs said, but basically it stinks. The background color is too dark, some lines are the wrong thickness, and the buttons are too big. Espinoza kept refining it in response to Jobs' critiques day after day, but with each iteration came new criticisms. So finally, one afternoon, when Jobs came by, Espinoza unveiled his solution, the Steve Jobs Roll Your Own Calculator Construction Set. It allowed the user to tweak and personalize the looks of the calculator by changing the thickness of the lines, the size of the buttons, the shading, the background, and other attributes. Instead of just laughing, Jobs plunged in and started to play around with the look to suit his tastes. After about 10 minutes, he got it the way he liked. His design, not surprisingly, was the one that shipped on the Mac and remained the standard for 15 years. Steve isn't just trolling Espinoza with his criticism of the calculator in order to have control over him. He doesn't just laugh off or get mad about this calculator construction set. Steve really does care about the way that this calculator looks. So when given the opportunity to design it himself, he does. As Steve Jobs later said, products are everything. You should never start a company with the goal of getting rich. Your goal should be making something you believe in. And Steve Jobs really was obsessed with making something that he believed in. Now, strictly speaking, that last bit was not really about the reality distortion field. It was more about just Steve's obsession with product. But I just like to leave that detail in because that iPhone app, that calculator app, I used hundreds of times and I did not know it was personally designed by Steve Jobs. And I feel a little bit grateful for it. <laughs>